Amen. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to help us as we open His Word together. Our God and our Father, we praise You in the name of Your Son for bringing us here this hour, for revealing Yourself to us through Your Word. Lord, we pray now for Your Spirit's help as we we seek to discern and understand Psalm number 69, how it is we can uh, pray this psalm as your people, how we can give glory to your name, how we can be comforted and encouraged in the midst of affliction, and how we can be a blessing to our neighbor. We pray that you will instruct us, that you will convict us of sin, that you will strengthen us in the precious promises of our Savior, all for his glory and for the good of your people. We ask this in his name. Amen. You take your seat with me, please, and uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm number 69. Psalm number 69. We've been, if you're a guest with us, we've been going through a short series on imprecatory psalms. And the imprecatory psalms is, is a sort of a subgenre within the Psalter, and they're, they're prayers for God's calamity or judgment to come upon his enemies. And we've wrestled with what feels like a contradiction to us. Because after all, our Lord Jesus told us, you are to love your neighbor, you are to pray for those who persecute you. And at the same time, we find in the Psalter a number of psalms that, that present to us very difficult things, very difficult words. Even things like we find in Psalm 69, may their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so that they cannot see and make their loins quake continually. How is it that we as Christians can pray such a thing? Should we pray such a thing? And the answer that we've come to conclusively is that yes, we should. Not only may we pray such things, but we ought to. But there's a certain spirit in which we pray them, as we've, we've discussed this in the last several that we've done. With Psalm 69, I'm going to tackle this in two parts. The first half of the psalm is, is almost exclusively lament. It is David's expression of intense sorrow and suffering. And then next week, we'll look at the second half in which he prays these prayers of lament. And having wrestled, as it were, with the depths of David's sorrow, I think it will be more clear to us how and why he prays as he does in the second half. So again, this first part is almost all lament. So when we, when we think about these, these difficult words to fully understand how and why David could pray such things as, may their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. May God's indignation be poured out upon them. May your burning anger overtake them. In order for us to understand fully, we need to immerse ourselves, as it were, in the sorrow that David feels, the sorrow that David experiences. The Psalter in, in, as a whole is a great gift to God's people, and in it, we are able to give expression to the full range of human suffering, the full range of human emotions. So this week, as we study the lament, may the Lord help us, as it were, to enter into this suffering with with eyes of faith, to see that we aren't just going to sit here and wallow in it, but there's a resolution, there's a hope to be found here. So this week, we'll study the lament Next week, the imprecation. But the first question we have to ask is, whose lament is it? Whose voice are we hearing here? 
And I propose to you there's, there's three different answers to that question, and they're all true. The first one is David. We see this, and we'll read the psalm in a moment, but the original inscription, the inspired inscription here, is this a psalm of David. David was a historical, literal person. He prayed this on the occasion of some literal suffering that he was enduring. We don't know the particular occasion. There are a number of possibilities, a number of times in David's life that could have fit the bill, as it were, but we don't know precisely what the circumstances were. But there is a second second layer to our understanding of this. We ought to hear this psalm and pray this psalm through the voice of our Savior. This psalm is six different verses in Psalm 69 are quoted for us in the New Testament. And, And all of them are either ascribed directly to Christ or about Christ. So we see that this is his prayer. It is his psalm. But there's a third layer. We pray this as the body of Christ. Christ is our head. This is, the, this is a prayer of the church in every age. So we'll think about this. That'll be, that will mark the three divisions within the sermon. Is we'll think about the psalm through the perspective of David himself. We'll think about the psalm through the perspective of Christ. And we'll think about the psalm through the perspective of the church in every age. So I'm going to read the, the psalm in its entirety uh, in your bulletin. I think we have through verse 18. I've gone back and forth on where exactly to divide this, and I'm still not sure I've divided it in the right place, but we'll, we'll go with what we've got. I'm going to go through 19 today. It will be our, our emphasis, but I'll read the, the psalm in its entirety. So hear now the word of God. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a relatively new translation, and there's a couple of things in this particular passage that um, caused me to choose this translation today. For the choir director, according to Shoshanim of David, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep clay, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my calling out. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. Being wrongfully my enemies, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and all my guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who dwell at the gate moan about me, and I am the drunkard's songs." But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh, at an acceptable time. O God, in the abundance of your loving kindness, answer me with the truth of your salvation. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good. According to the abundance of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your slave, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. 
All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I hoped for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They all gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so that they cannot see, and may their loins quake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have struck down. And they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous." But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And this will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble see it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him the seas, and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The seed of his slaves will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice how David pours out his suffering, the suffering of his heart before the Lord. Let's observe here in Psalm 69 the various ways that we see David suffering. and His suffering is is multifaceted. It comes at him from different directions and and of different kinds. Notice here in the the very first few verses, the first three verses in particular, David just jumps in. There's there's no warm-up. There's an urgency. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. The imagery here is is a powerful image, and it's an image that universally, no matter where you are, what time you've lived, no matter what your culture is, even if you've lived in a landlocked nation, the idea of being swallowed up in water is a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. The ESV says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. That's a vivid image, isn't it? Imagine standing somewhere and water rising up and up and up, and you have no way to escape. That's the image. And, and it's, a, it's such a terrifying thing that even in, in so-called enhanced ter- interrogation techniques, the idea of waterboarding is to simulate this idea of drowning in order to extract information from someone. Make it stop because it's such a miserable experience. David is, is comparing his suffering to rising water. There is a unique kinds of, of, of stress. When I was in college, I served for a couple years as a lifeguard. And in the initial training and then all the continuing training every summer after, one of the things that we were constantly reminded of is basically self-defense techniques. Because if you go into the water with someone who's drowning, this is not a rational creature you're dealing with. They will climb you like a tree. Because there is a primal innate fear when water is coming up around you. And it's, and, but it's worse than that. It's worse than just having deep waters coming up. He says, I've sunk in deep clay and there's no foothold. It gets more terrifying than merely water coming up. You can't even, as it were, get up on your toes or jump and catch a breath. The feet are mired down in clay. 
There's no foothold. Your feet just slip constantly. So it's a, it's a very stark image that David is painting. This is, his suffering here is painted as just overwhelming and inescapable. It's overwhelming and inescapable. Matthew Henry comments this way. He says, The waters of affliction, those bitter waters, have come unto my soul, not only threaten my life, but they disquiet my mind. They fill my head with perplexing cares and my heart with oppressive grief so that I cannot enjoy God and myself as I used to. We shall bear up under troubles if we can, but keep them from our hearts. But when they put us out of the possession of our own souls, our case is bad. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but what shall we do when the spirit is wounded? Have you ever felt that? Spiritually speaking, because you've wrestled with your own sin, or because you've wrestled with the consequences of the sin of someone else against you, you've felt that sting of betrayal. You've felt the suffering and the hardship and the calamity, and it's like the whole thing just, just consumes you. And even your thinking towards God has changed. That's where David finds himself. And again, we don't know when it was. Perhaps this is before he, was, he had been anointed as king but not installed yet. Perhaps this is when Saul is hunting him down. And numerous times, David is near despair, despairing for his life, thinking, Saul is surely going to kill me. Or perhaps it's when his own son Absalom has betrayed him and David's been driven from the city of Jerusalem in shame, openly mocked and ridiculed. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us when this happened, but we know this was, this was an, an overwhelming kind of suffering that shaped everything, shaped his thinking, shaped his, his, his outlook on the whole world, and even how he viewed God himself. But there's another thing we notice about David's suffering. We see this in verse 4. Those who hate me without cause are more than the heads of my head, the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. The other thing we notice about his suffering is it's unjust, it's unprovoked. David is not here asserting that he is sinless. We'll see the next verse that tells us otherwise. He's not saying he's sinless, but he's saying in this case, I don't deserve this. They have made themselves my enemies without cause. And perhaps this is the issue with Saul. Many times Saul had chased him down and, and, and accusing David of wanting to take his life if you look at 1 Samuel in chapters 24 and 26, you, two see, you see two different examples. One where Saul is relieving himself in a cave, and David is close enough, close enough to him that he cuts off the corner of his, of his robe. Could have taken the knife to him right then. Two chapters later, Saul is asleep with, this, with his own spear next to his head. Even his guard is asleep. David has the opportunity. He actually takes the, the spear symbolically to show Saul I had the opportunity, and I wouldn't do it. He was falsely accused. He was, Saul was falsely an enemy of his. Saul accused him of, of using his own son, Jonathan, against him, which, was, of course, wasn't true. So David is saying, my suffering is unjust. It's unprovoked. He's also saying sometimes our suffering is caused by our own folly and sin. Look at verse 5. Oh, God, it is you who knows my folly, and all my guilt is not hidden from you. I wouldn't dare ask for a show of hands, but how many have experienced the consequences of their own sin and have suffered as a result? You've been foolish, and you look back and say, oh, Lord, why did I do that? And now I'm bearing the consequences of that. But there's another thing we notice about David's suffering. In David's case, David was not merely 
an individual man suffering. He was that, but not only that. David's suffering was compounded by the weight of his crown. It was compounded by the weight of his responsibility. Look at verses 6 and 7. May those who hope for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. David was king of Israel, and with that came the responsibilities of caring for the people of God. But also... He was a covenant head. God had made a covenant through David that one day he would establish a royal and eternal throne through David's lineage. David understood this. He he felt the weight of that. And that magnified his suffering because he knew it wasn't only he that would suffer. Those of you who are parents, you understand this. You understand that, that your own sin has an effect on those underneath you. If you're in your workplace and you have people in your care, you know the decisions you make bear upon other people as well. Isn't that true generally within the life of the body of Christ? Our actions have an effect on one another. We, if we, we, we don't just sin privately. Those have an effect on other people. So our suffering is, is compounded by the weight of those who are depending upon us. There's another reason, another element of David's suffering. We see this in verse 9. You'll recognize this as one of those verses quoted in the New Testament. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. David's suffering was the immediate result of his worship of God. David's suffering was the direct result of the fact that he was faithful in worship to God. Saints, more and more in our day, this is true, isn't it? Merely being identified as a Christian, being identified publicly with God's people can be a cause of suffering. See, one of the things that that we have to, I think, need to recover is the theology of suffering. The the idea of peace and prosperity and tranquility that we experienced over the last several hundred years in our nation, really, historically speaking, is an anomaly. It's not ordinary. That's not normal. God has been very gracious and kind to us. But that's not ordinary. We have no reason, no lawful expectation that that will continue. We have no reason to presume upon God's grace. David's suffering was deep. It was intense. And in his anguish, he cried out to God for deliverance. So the first way we understand the psalm, and as we pray this psalm, we recognize this was, this was a historical figure who prayed these things to his heavenly Father, resting and trusting in the goodness of God. But there is another layer, if you will, another voice that we need to hear in the psalm, and it's this. Christ has come. Christ has come and has endured these sufferings on behalf of his people, on behalf of David and on behalf of all of his people. So we want to hear Psalm 69 through this voice. I want to give you a sample of some of the different ways that this passage is quoted in the New Testament. You will hear the very voice of Christ as the apostles quote from this psalm and attribute those words to Christ himself. In John chapter 2 and verse 15, and I'm I'm just going to run through these fairly quickly so you can write them down if you want, you don't have to turn there. In in, in John chapter 2 verse 15, and he made a scourge of cords, and this is Jesus, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, the apostles recognized Psalm 69 was about their Savior. This was him about whom the psalmist was speaking. Then John 15, verse 25, but this happened to fulfill the word that was written in their law, they hated me without cause. We saw this in Psalm 35 as well, the very same phrase. So the New Testament is quoting from either or both, Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. Then in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul He says, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And in John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished in order to finish the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine, vinegar, was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. All four of the gospel writers quote this passage and attribute this to Christ. This psalm is about our Messiah. And finally, we've already seen this in Acts chapter 1. And and when Peter stands and instructs the other apostles and, and the disciples gathered there, they were wondering what to do about the, the, the vacancy in the office of apostle that Judas had left after his betrayal and after his suicide. And Peter quotes from Psalm 69, it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. So what we conclude as we look at how the New Testament views Psalm 69 is that we ought to hear the voice of our own Savior, the voice of Jesus himself. David is praying prophetically. He's praying through the voice of Christ prophetically. Charles Spurgeon said, If any inquire of whom does the psalmist speak, of himself or of some other man, we would reply, of himself and of some other man. Who the other is, we need not be long in discovering. It is the crucified alone who can say, In my thirst, They gave me vinegar to drink. No one but Christ could say that. David prayed this, but ultimately and finally, it wasn't even David's words, was it? It was the Spirit of the living God praying prophetically through David. David's suffering was real. It was severe, but it was finite. David's suffering was finite. It was entirely limited to his human capacity. But Christ came and bore up under every kind of suffering that David endured and far more. Far more in terms of its breadth and its intensity. And Jesus bore this suffering in both his body and his soul. As the God-man, he had a human body and a human soul, just as we have and yet without sin. And Christ bore the wrath, the infinite wrath of God in both body and soul. Jesus Christ bore the suffering that no man had ever endured, no man could ever endure. And he bore the suffering as a substitute for all who would believe in him. Look back at verse 4 again. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful being wrongly 
my enemies. But look at the very last line. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. The ESV, I think, wrongly poses this as a question. It's not a question. Jesus is asserting, I didn't steal anything. And yet I'm the one who's restoring it. I'm the one who's making the payment on the debt that isn't mine. You ever felt this way? You ever felt like someone else has caused harm and, and you have to bear the cost? Someone else has acted grievously and you're left, as it were, holding the bag? You're trying to remain faithful, but someone else has sinned and you bear the price of that. Far more. None of us could ever say, I didn't have any debt. If we've been sinned against, it is far less than we've ever, than no one has ever sinned against us to the same degree we have sinned against God. But let's think this through. When Jesus says, I did not steal, and yet I'm restoring, what, what has man stolen? And from whom? Ultimately, man has stolen from God. What is what is what is man robbed God of? Well, first, honor as creator. If you were to turn and read through Romans one, you see that that is what that is the reason for God's judgment upon mankind is because they failed to honor God as God, failed to honor Him as creator, failed to worship Him as the creator. So God has been robbed of that worship. Jesus could say, "I haven't robbed God in that way." And yet I'm, I'm paying the debt for it. Can you say that? Can you say you've never failed to worship God as you ought? Can you say you've never robbed God in that way? I can't, and neither can you. It is owed to God that we worship him as Lord and sovereign. It is owed to God that we respond to him with joy and gratitude for all of the good gifts that he has given It is owed to God that all human beings respond to him with obedience. He is the great lawgiver. And yet we've disobeyed his word. In short, we owe God everything. In Romans 12, after Paul has spent 11 chapters laying out the infinite glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service to God. This is, this, is, this is a logical, reasonable response for all that God has done. And yet we rob God. And Jesus says, I pay what I didn't steal. I restore what I didn't take. Christ has borne the full measure of suffering so that each and every one of us can live before God in righteousness. Jesus has borne the full measure of suffering that actually each one of us deserves. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, this this wonderful short uh, passage is equally beautiful in its poetic expression, but even more, it's beautiful in what it communicates to us about the suffering servant, about the Son of the living God. The Word of God through Isaiah says, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. 
he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What I didn't steal, I have to restore. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, is, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgressions of my people, striking was due to him? So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see a seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Psalm 69 shows us exactly how our Messiah intercedes for his people. I have not stolen anything, and yet I'm restoring it. I haven't robbed God in any way, shape, or form, and yet I am the one paying the price. So we have to understand Psalm 69, not only through the voice and experience of David, but even more so through the voice and experience of our risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, to our Redeemer. And yet there is yet a third voice that we hear in Psalm 69. And it is this, this is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the body of Christ that continues to pray these very words along with our Savior, praying in, in faith, praying in him and through him by his mediation to the Father. So every Christian has to learn and, and can be helped in Psalm 69 of learning how this suffering applies to our own lives. How do we think about the suffering that's enumerated here by David? The church of Jesus Christ and every member of it ought to pray Psalm 69. So we've asked the question in, in, previous, um, in previous sermons here on the imprecatory series, should we pray these imprecatory psalms? And yes, they are, they are a vital component of our, of our lives of prayer before the Lord. They instruct us, they shape us in terms of how we pray, but also what we pray. Because our Savior has fulfilled all the suffering that's described here in Psalm 69, we are now able to endure suffering 
with hope. Our suffering has a terminus. It has an end point. It has an objective given by a holy and righteous and wise Father. In the midst of our suffering, where is our hope grounded? Our hope is grounded in in this fact. The suffering of Christ reached a planned termination point. I mean, think about this. As we read the psalm, is David still suffering in this way? No. David is in glory. Is Christ still suffering in this way? No. This is where Rome, one of the many things that Rome has, has wrong, even in, in the, the image of the crucifixion, where Christ is still hanging on the cross. That isn't true. Christ bore that grief. He bore that sorrow. He bore even the infinite holy wrath of God. And it came to an end. And God raised him from the dead, exalted him, him, gave him a name above every name. And now he is seated at the right hand of God with a promise to us that he's going to return. The suffering of Christ had an eternally planned goal. And he fulfilled all that was decreed by God the Father. Christ suffers no longer. Jesus rose from the grave, and he now rules and he reigns at the right hand of God. So now we, as, as we take up these words, as the body of Christ, as we, as we take these up in your, in your own prayer closet, as we gather corporately and we pray these words, we are able to pray with fervency to our Lord and faith to our Lord, knowing that these things have been fulfilled. Our suffering has an end point. Our suffering isn't infinite. Our suffering isn't, doesn't last forever. Now look ahead to verse 19. Go back up to 16. David prays, Christ prays, we can pray. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good. That loving kindness is, is it's, a, it's a Hebrew word that's just loaded with various meanings. And you'll see it translated as loving kindness as faithfulness, of mercy. It's God's covenant dealings with his people. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good. According to the abundance of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your slave, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Listen to this, saints. You know my reproach and my shame in my dishonor, all my adversaries are before you. Sometimes it's a comfort when people are suffering, people are sick, people are, have been wounded, people have experienced great loss. It's, it's encouraging to, for them to just simply know that someone knows. Know that someone is, is praying for them, thinking about them. Far beyond our comprehension, the psalmist turns his attention to God and says, you know. You know my suffering. You know the reproach. You know the dishonor. You know the shame that I am enduring. Church, we can pray this. As we see persecution mounting, even in our own nation, as we see it in many places, we're able to pray, God, you know this. You know. The Lord knows. He knows your sorrows, your suffering, and your reproach. Whether it's deserved or undeserved, the Lord knows it. But equally important, he knows the end of that suffering. And and, and by end, I mean not only the point in time, 
when it comes to a, to a stop. But the purpose of it, the telos, the goal, the purpose, the objective of that suffering, we don't know that. See, sometimes it's too often. We, 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 want to, we wouldn't maybe have the gall to pray this just quite like this, but we would say, Lord, if you would just tell me why this trial has come, I would be able to endure it. Or, God, if you would just tell me how long it'll last, I'll be okay. God says, no, what you need to focus on is that I know. I know. Lord, you know my sorrow. You know the end of it. You know the extent of it. You know the purpose of it. He knows the very moment when the heavens will part and all suffering will cease. God knows the very moment when the trumpet will sound and Christ and all the angels in glory will come and descend upon the earth and ransom his people home. God knows. Is your your hope there? Or do you want to place your hope in you knowing something? Is your hope resting on the eternal wisdom of God that he knows? Or is your hope resting on what your fallible mind can comprehend? See how easy it is to misplace our hope? See how easily we are tempted in those ways? The Lord knows the precise instant when your Messiah King will come and take home all for whom he has died. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul Paul deals with this very issue and, and one of the most beautiful passages in all the New Testament. Is that we find it in Romans 8, but it's, it's rooted in this very fact that God knows. It's rooted in the fact that, that, that God knows not only the, the duration and the extent of our suffering, but why. And Paul doesn't seek to, find, to place our hope in explanations of those things. Where does he seek to center the hope for the Christian? in the glory that will one day be revealed to us. Look at Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? You see where Paul is saying, saints, don't place your attention, don't place your hope on what you can see, what you can know, what you can understand. You place your hope on what God knows, what God sees, what only God can comprehend. 
Verse 26, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And sometimes we read this text and, and we think immediately only in a mystical sense, that somehow there's this mystical immediate exchange between me and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps, perhaps the Holy Spirit uses the infallible word of God to pray for us. As we submit ourselves to something like Psalm 69 and pray those very words. We don't know how to pray. The Spirit intercedes for you. He's given you words to pray. He helps your spirit to pray those very words of Christ. And he who searches the hearts, verse 27, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See what Paul says he knows? He doesn't say, I know what the purpose of the suffering is. He doesn't say, I know how long it will last. He doesn't say, I know the the, the extent of that suffering. He says, I know this. God knows. I know this, that God's purposes will be fulfilled. That everything that happens, from our perspective, whether it's good or ill, is working out the purposes of God. It is perfectly working out His purposes. Because, he says, here's the reason he can stand firm and stand convinced and stand hopeful in that conviction. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the very image of God, his son. And so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Our hope, saints, in Psalm 69 is that Christ has been raised, that his suffering is over, and he's the first fruits of many brothers. We, too, will join him in that resurrected glory. We will be given a body like his. We will behold him face to face. Paul said, that's where my hope is. My hope isn't in knowing the things of this world. My hope isn't in, in understanding what's going on around me. My hope isn't knowing exactly when it will come to a close. My hope is in the knowledge of God and his character, his goodness, and his purposes that remain a mystery to me. I may go to my grave and never understand the trial that I've endured. You may live the rest of your life and never understand certain things you've been through. You may still scratch your head on your deathbed and say, that's still a mystery to me. He continues... And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What's the conclusion? What what conclusion do we draw from this reality? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul does? He could have easily quoted here from Psalm 69, couldn't he? He said, this suffering that Christ endured, it was for you. It was to bear your sorrows, your grief, your shame, your sin. 
the penalty justly due to you. And if God did that to his own son and bore him through that, including his resurrection, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will God not do that? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. See, Paul doesn't say he died and we're going to continue to wallow in that suffering. No, God raised him. He's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Who will then separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we return again, to Psalm 69. We come back to verse 9. We say, you know my, 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 you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Lord, you know. You know. Charles Spurgeon makes this remark. He says, save me, O God. Thus David had prayed, and here his son and Lord utters the same cry. The head that now is crowned with glory is the same that wore the thorns. He to whom we pray, save us, O God, is the self-same person who cried, save me, O God. My soul, your well-beloved endured all this for you. Many waters could not quench his love. Neither could the floods drown it. And because of this, you have the rich benefit of that covenant assurance. As I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. He stemmed the torrent of almighty wrath that we might forever rest in Jehovah's love. Isn't that good? Saints, this is our hope because Christ has endured this suffering for us. We can pray now as his body, both individually and corporately, we can pray, we ought to pray in faith that God hears our prayers. He sent his only begotten son into the world for this very purpose, to bear our sorrows, our suffering, and our sin. May our faith be strengthened and firmly established as we rest secure in Christ. Even when we suffer, our suffering is not in vain. And the fact that our Lord's suffering has come to an end testifies to us that one day, our, we too can say our suffering has ceased. In fact, not only has the suffering ceased, but there will be no possibility whatsoever of it ever returning again. The sickness will never come back. The heartache will never return. The tears will never flow again. The betrayal will never sting ever again. 
But for the time remaining, how do we as, as members of the body of Christ pray this psalm? Well, as we've seen in the other imprecatory psalms, we, we pray for deliverance. It is right for us. Save us, O God. Rescue us out of these deep waters. Pull us out of the miry clay. It is right to pray for deliverance. And we'll see next week, it's right for us to pray for justice towards God's enemies. For God to deal with his enemies according to his perfect justice. We also pray for patience. We pray for endurance in the midst of suffering, both for ourselves and for others. As you, as you contemplate and meditate upon what, we've, what we're seeing overseas, for example, as you think about the, the plight of the church in both Ukraine and Russia right now, this very moment, are you praying that God would deliver them? Are you praying that God would give them patience and endurance and wisdom to endure the hardship, to endure the suffering? We also pray for a good testimony among those God has placed in our sphere of influence. It's a right way for us to respond and pray in the midst of suffering and and sorrow. Just because we are hurting doesn't give us a license to sin, does it? Sometimes we're like the wounded animal that wants to bite the one who helps us because we're hurting. And it's exactly at that moment of sorrow and suffering that God may use our sanctified response to those things to draw someone nearer to Christ to adorn the gospel with our good works, to adorn the gospel with our conduct. And may our conduct be such that unbelievers are drawn to it, not repelled from the gospel by our actions. Peter Peter expresses it this way. When he's writing to pilgrims, sojourners, people who've lost their homes, people who have suffered intense persecution, he writes to them and says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even in the midst of sorrow, maybe especially in the midst of sorrow, we have an opportunity to testify of the goodness of our God. May GFBC, if we look at verses 6 and 7 in particular, may those who hope for you not be ashamed through me. Do we pray such a thing as a church? Do you pray such a thing as a family? As an individual, may those who seek you, verse 6, not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. In the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our suffering, do we pray, Lord, don't let me dishonor you in the way I respond to this. Don't let me be a reproach and a stumbling block to someone else by the way I've responded. So we pray. In terms of our response to Psalm 69, we pray, but we also take action. We don't passively wait for Christ to return. We set about the business of obeying his commands. Seeking the grace of his spirit to sanctify us in that objective truth. We, 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 we heard, as Andrew read from John 17 today, our Lord prayed for you. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And sometimes we don't stop and think in this way, but perhaps um, second only to the, the holiness of our gathered worship, the impact that we can have on a depraved culture, the opportunity that we have as image bearers of the risen Christ, as redeemed image bearers, 
is more sharply shown in the, in the way our homes are ordered. When we think about how to pray this, may those who hope for you not be ashamed through me. As we pray this as a church, as, as you pray in your home, may those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Do we think about how our homes are ordered? It's interesting, in Titus chapter 2, Paul has just laid out, oh, here's all the problems in Crete. Here's the false teachers, here's the false doctrine, here's, here's the, the depravity at work. And he begins the next chapter, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And immediately, what does he do? He goes to the home. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Here's how you are to conduct yourselves in accordance with the sound doctrine that you teach. Because if the world looks at us and says, why would we believe that? It hasn't changed you. Your home is no different than my home. Your priorities are no different than mine. Is, is, is what you're teaching really true? If our homes look no different than those around us, then surely the salt has lost its flavor. I've been reading a, a, a good little book. It's written by a Reformed Baptist pastor by the name of Bruce Ray. It's a book on child training. It's called Withhold Not Correction. And I, I, this, this quote stood out to me, and I was thinking about meditating on the sermon this week and, and reading this kind of parallel to that, and they, as often does, the streams flowed together. Listen to what he says. The manner in which our children conduct themselves in the worship service, school, neighborhood, and home reflects the truth which is proclaimed from the pulpit of our church. It reflects upon the truth which is revealed in the Bible. If unbelievers look at our homes and do not see any of godliness in our homes, any more godliness in, their ho- in our homes than in theirs, they will say that our book is a failure, our Christ is a failure, and the truths we maintain are not practical. That is a very great responsibility to bear. Under God, I do not want my home or my life to be the cause of someone outside the church of Jesus Christ saying that God's word is not true. We have a responsibility before God to so order our homes that they bear witness to the truth. And that responsibility has not only been placed upon us as individuals, but also as churches. We are responsible to help and encourage one another in disciplining our children. Sometimes we, we, can, we can read something like Psalm 69, and, we, and, our, and our thoughts go immediately to all kinds of, 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 of suffering that seems far away, or that seems sort of out of reach or esoteric or, or you know, intangible. And there are also very tangible expressions of how we respond and how we pray, for what kinds of things we ought to pray. So as the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to pray Psalm 69, and we ought to pray for the grace of obedience, to pray that God would give us hearts willing to endure suffering for Christ's sake. In the midst of that suffering, not to, not to give ourselves a license to let go of the obedience to Christ's commands. We ought to pray for the grace of perseverance. We ought to pray in thanksgiving that our Savior has known every form of human suffering and yet without sin. That he can stand as our perfect, spotless, sinless high priest. He's been tempted in every way that we have been except without sin. And we ought to pray saints in hope, resting in the sure knowledge that David's prayer was answered. David no longer suffers. And we pray in the sure knowledge that Christ's prayer was answered. 
God having poured out his infinite wrath upon him, he was crucified, he was dead and buried, and on the third day he rose, proving that the sacrifice was acceptable. So we pray Psalm 69 in faith, knowing that our Savior prays these very same words on your behalf, on my behalf. Surely, he has borne our sins and sorrows. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word where we confess that our, our hearts are so fickle, we, we are so easily distracted, we are so easily taken off course. And, and even in our, our suffering, we, we often use that as an excuse, an excuse to disobey you, or an excuse to, to fail to love our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would grant to us the grace to persevere. You'd give us hearts to... to seeking to honor our Lord in every circumstance, that you will fill our minds and our hearts with, with a persevering faith, knowing that you who have begun the good work in us will be the one who brings it to completion. Help us to rest in Christ. Help us to take upon his yoke, which is easy, and his burden which is light, knowing that he has borne all for us. Amen.